Hello and welcome to the BLS Report. This podcast is produced by the Business Law Section of the Law Council of Australia. It explores issues of interest to commercial lawyers and honours the legacy of the late Professor Bob Baxt, AO. I'm recording my part of the podcast today on Gadigal land and I begin by acknowledging the Gadigal people's custodianship of this land and water and paying my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. I am Professor Pamela Hanrahan from the UNSW Business School and I'm the Deputy Chair of the Business Law Section. I'm joined today by my regular co-host, fellow BLS Executive Member and a colleague of mine at Johnson Winter Slattery, John Keeves. Hello, John. Hi, Pamela. John, today we're going to take a deeper dive into privacy. Privacy law has been in the news following some high-profile recent data breaches and the review of the Commonwealth Privacy Act that was released by the Attorney-General back in February. That review was undertaken on the recommendation, you'll recall, of the ACCC in its 2019 Digital Platforms Report. So it's been in the works for a while. The government released its response to that review report back in September of this year. I thought we might go behind the review and talk a bit today about the bigger picture with privacy protection in Australia. We have two very special guests to help us with that discussion. John, would you like to introduce them? Of course. Our first guest is Olga Ganapolsky. Olga is General Counsel Privacy and Data at Macquarie Group and Chair of the Privacy Committee of the Business Law Section. Welcome, Olga. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Our other guest is Michael Rivette. Michael is a member of the Victorian Bar and those who practice in the areas of privacy law, breach of confidence and data protection know Michael as a leader in the field. He has appeared as counsel in three of the four privacy class actions issued in Australia and has published widely in the area, including his 2020 article on privacy class actions in the Australian Law Journal. Uh, welcome, Michael. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I'm going to kick us off, if I may, with a quote from the Australian Law Reform Commission back in 2014. It's from the ALRC discussion paper 80, dealing with privacy in the digital age. That discussion paper set out some fundamental principles and amongst them was this one, which was the first one. The ALRC said, privacy is a fundamental value worthy of legal protection. Privacy is important to enable individuals to live a dignified, fulfilling, safe and autonomous life. Now, as we know, the right to privacy is recognised as a fundamental human right in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and also in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Australia is a signatory to that covenant. It requires Australia to provide legal protection against what the covenant describes as arbitrary or unlawful interference with privacy, family, home or correspondence and against unlawful attacks on honour and reputation. Olga, why does it matter that privacy is a human right? I think it's important to appreciate the source of law um, and as most practitioners will appreciate that in our system, unless and only to the extent that international uh, human rights and, and international covenants are implemented in our law, uh, those 
sources of law remain just that, a source of law and an influence on how the law is interpreted. The genesis in, in the human rights jurisprudence, and as, as you've quoted, has really coloured the fact that this is a protective jurisdiction, this is a right that's given to individuals. But as you quite rightly underscore in your introduction, it is protection from arbitrary or unlawful interference. So it's not an absolute right, but it is seen as a precursor to many other rights that we enjoy in, in a, a civil society. I think it's also important to bring into the picture when we're talking about rights and balancing of those rights that our regime, certainly from a statutory point of view, also heralds back to the OECD and the guidelines on the protection of privacy and transborder flow of personal data. I think it's really important that even the OECD principles and guidelines already call into action the need to balance the rights of individuals and, and their need for protection with what's referred to as cross-border data transfers and clearly all sorts of other data-related activities. So our regime is reasonably complex and that it draws from the human rights regime and international regime more broadly, but very early in the piece brings in this combination of factors that need to be balanced. Uh, thanks, Olga. Um, the context in which our privacy is potentially under threat is so different now from what it was 20 years ago or indeed 35 years ago when the Privacy Act was passed. Um, international expectations, for example, the European General Data Protection Regulation have changed. Uh, Michael, has Australia kept up or is it a laggard? Look, it's incredibly behind, which is which is um, particularly sad given that it was actually an Australian, Dr. Evert, who headed up the UN delegation and was president of the UN General Assembly, who saw the adoption of Article 12 in the Universal Declaration, which was not, that was the first time that it was embodied that an individual needs to be protected from invasions to their personal life. Um, which then found its way into Article 17 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. So Australia was at the forefront of pushing this, as this aspect of human rights, um, but it's lagged. The first lag has been this. We are what's known as a dualist state rather than a monist state. A, dual, a monist state will adopt treaties as part of their law, the treaty being the International Covenant. Australia does not sit legally on that foundation. We're a dualist state and we must enact either legislation or develop the common law in such a way that it responds to our international treaty obligations. Australia has repeatedly fallen short and continues to fall short. The, one of the critical things is our main piece of Commonwealth legislation, not, not state legislation, but Commonwealth legislation is the Privacy Act. It should be called the Data Privacy Act because it only deals with really the transmission of personal information and data. That's, that's what it actually encompasses. In order to protect personal information, the right of an individual from intrusion, from paparazzi looking over someone's, uh, someone's uh, offence in order to get a shot of some celebrity or otherwise, um, that we treat, that doesn't fall under the data, under the Privacy Act at all. And what we have had to do is to fill in those areas through the development of the common law and equity in this country. Um, but effectively, why we 
from 1998, why we've instantly fell behind with our uh, Privacy Act regime, our legislative regime, is simply because we had exemptions that other countries did not. We had a small business exemption where most corporations, by large, the number, the large number of businesses fall outside of the Privacy Act. There is no protection. The International Covenant did not contemplate that. That's not what we signed up for. We also had employee exemptions and once again, um, a whole range of individuals find themselves with no protection in relation to particular information that their employer may obtain. And they've been subject to recommendations. I think we'll come on to the recommendations later in the latest Australian Law Reform Commission. They have been the subject of that. But still, it's more consultation. So then we come to the common law. How do we protect in the common law? We know that there is no statutory right of, uh, sorry, no statutory uh, tort of invasion of privacy or misuse of private of private um, private information, unlike other countries, New Zealand, our nearest neighbours, and the UK has a very developed uh, tort of invasion of privacy that's been developed through the common law, in 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 response to their international obligations. Um, we don't have that. Uh, but we don't need it because simply what we do in the common law over a process of uh, this millennia, we've developed the common law to protect privacy interests. One of the most seminal cases was um, Giller and Prosopitz, which I was fortunate enough to present this legal argument in front of the Court of Appeal, which lowered the threshold of breach of confidence from recognised psychiatric illness or um, actual uh, real loss, actual uh, financial loss or, or other real loss, um, to, uh, in relation to uh, the, the mental state, it lowered it to distress injuries only. And that meant that it became a privacy action. We, I knit together, we knit together causes of action like breach of contract, like misrepresentation under the ACL and other causes of action, traditional causes of action to protect interests. Because what businesses have to realise, whilst there's no invasion, tort of invasion of privacy, what there is, if they make representations when collecting information, whether it be in their privacy policy on the websites or however it's collected, that they'll deal with that information in a particular way and they do not, then that can be a breach of contract often we form click contracts uh, online. It can also be and, and may also be a breach of the Australian consumer laws. Um, and the whole area of privacy, I'll talk about this maybe later, but the whole area of privacy now is moving into a different commercial area where we're asking the courts to interpret commercial terms in contracts where what someone says, I, I undertake to keep this information confidential, what that actually means and what it means that they have to do in relation to security. Long answer, but we are so far behind. We are decades behind. It should be an embarrassment to this country how far we are behind. There is also an economic imperative that is, that is fundamental and Australia really needs to consider. I argued this in the Telstra and Grubb case where I appeared as an amicus. The, there is an economic imperative that Australia comes up to international standards. It is lagging behind now. For example, um, Article 25 of the Directive 95 of the European Union um, says, as a general rule, only 
a member state, so that is an organisation in subject to the GDPR, can only transfer personal data to third countries that ensure an adequate level of protection. And an adequate level of protection is the protection that the European Union considers adequate under the GDPR. We fall far short of that. It's now possible for the European Union to say to a European organisation, you've got this contract with this Australian company, you're transferring data, but Australia does not live up to our standards. Therefore, you must terminate that contract. So I think it's moving on into a business and commercial imperative that Australia um, actually comes up to international standards. We lag incredibly because of these exemptions. We've had a report, great, it's the third report, but it's still under consultation. It's going to be years before we see any any anything actually uh, embodied. Thanks, Michael. That was a very clear call to arms. Um, I was reflecting on commercial misuse of people's private information and what I might call social misuse of private information. We might come back to that because I think the Australian regime spends a lot of time on the former and not so much maybe on the latter, but we'll come back to that a little bit later. I know Olga has a different line of attack on privacy law. John? Uh, thanks, Pamela. Um, Olga, we know that you have some uh, rule of law concerns. I was just picking up on the observation that uh, Michael was making about the the gaps and how they're filled by, by the common law and the combination of, of causes of action, the working combination of rights that are protected. On the cross-border piece, that's probably a very obvious and colourful example of how businesses have had to deal with the gaps and address the question both from a legal and a practical point of view. And as a matter of um, quite established practice now, most businesses in Australia, and for that matter, any other country that doesn't have the benefit of adequacy of the European Union, enter into standard contractual clauses. Those standard contractual clauses commit the parties to transfer information in accordance with the requirements of the General Data Protection Regulation. And... Um, those standard contractual clauses are, in fact, the subject of approval by the European Commission, and there is a very uh, developed legal and compliance set of practices about implementing those standard contractual clauses, updating them appropriately, and making sure that they are implemented in, in any cross-border data-related arrangements, which clearly will involve a lot of technology contracts, a lot of matters where information will move on a daily basis across multiple borders. Can you actually address that question and in essence created a set of standards that countries and businesses are adopting in order to create seamless and compliant processes? So those gaps are being met in, in, in that fashion and that themselves have been a response to challenges in the European Union system. And so, you know, the, the series of Schrems cases and, and, and what occurred in cross-border decisions there is very, very telling to how we're responding in Australia to the various practical challenges and the fact that Australia doesn't have the benefit of, of adequacy. On the question of the rule of law, it's, it's a related uh, issue and it really speaks and gives, I suppose, a very clear articulation of how we measure for those gaps. And for practitioners listening, um, you will know that the Law Council has a position on what are the various indicia of, of a rule of law and how you would measure legislation, whether it meets the mark 
and addresses those requirements. And the first requirement that the Law Council articulates is that it's readily known and available and certain and clear. And if anything, this discussion has shown that it's not meeting those requirements. The fact that the common law is augmenting the gaps, the fact that various practices are born in order to address the gaps. And so if you were to summarise kind of the rule of law concern and respond to that specific question, if you look at the scope of the Privacy Act as a legislative uh, regime, the, the very fact that we're still uh, debating and litigating the definition of personal information, which is a cornerstone question of how you enter into the protection that's afforded by uh, the legislative regime. Uh, the fact that it's not applied equally, Michael's already uh, alluded and, and, and articulated the fact that there are some substantive exceptions to the scope of the legislation and what is considered an organisation that's covered. So the small businesses are a good example. And I would say that a very powerful example of a gap in the, is the employer records exemption. And even though that exemption is not absolute, uh, there are certainly workplace participants that do have protection of, of the privacy regime in, in, in some circumstances. The fact that it's not equally applied, the fact that employment, even in, in some parts, is taken out of the protection given how critical the employment relationship is and how much personal information is exchanged in the formation and administration of that uh, relationship is, is, is clearly a gap that deals with the question of not being applied equally. And last but not least, in terms of autonomy uh, and of how those rights are applied, uh, it's also very clear in our legislative framework that individuals do not have a direct cause of action for breaches of the Privacy Act itself. Uh, and again, um, you know, Michael's description of how the common laws developed around that is sort of almost a compensation and partly a response to that. But it, it's a very clear position that it's the regulator's role to administer and enforce those rights. The individuals of themselves don't have a right uh, of or a cause of action for uh, breaches of the Privacy Act or interferences with their privacy as formulated under the Act. So that's a pretty substantive, let's call it room for improvement category. This is the BLS Report, and we're discussing the legal protection of privacy in Australia with Olga, Chair of the BLS Privacy Subcommittee, and Michael from the Victorian Bar. Michael, you were talking before about the development of the common law to fill, if you like, the lacuna that's left by the um, Privacy Act, and I liked your comment about it should be the Data Privacy Act. Um, so if statutory privacy law is not really where the litigation action is, can you talk to us about the developing common law in this space? I know you wrote about it in your ALJ article. Um, could you speak to the most significant recent developments in private law in this area? Yes, look, I have to start by saying this. Although the Privacy Act has um, great gaps in it, it still forms a foundation of the way in which we plead major privacy breaches if it involves data. Um, and now with the Medibank and Optus class actions, uh, if it involves uh, a threat actor who has taken that information, that is hacking, through hacking, um, the Privacy Act still informs it because what we find is that it's often with a business 
they have obligations under the Australian privacy principles, for security, for destruction, etc. Um, and they make representations on their website or when they're collecting information, such as Medibank did, to say we keep this, we comply with the Privacy Act, etc. Uh, and it creates contractual terms. Um, it also can creates representations. Uh, and so we formulate those traditional breach of contract and um, and contraventions of Section 18 of the uh, of the Australian Consumer Law from a foundation of the representations that have often been made in relation to the Privacy Act. Not always, but that generally informs it. So the Privacy Act is not redundant. We can't seek direct um, uh, compensation under the under through the courts. That has to be through the commissioner, through the information commissioner, um, and. But what we do is we seek our compensation through the breach of contract, through the ACL, and also through breach of confidence. Breach of confidence will arise by virtue of the nature of the information, often itself. So it can arise contractually. We say, we'll keep all of your data confidential. We promise that. That's a contractual obligation of confidence. Um, and it can also arise by virtue of the very nature of the information. And... Um, Chief Justice Gleeson in ABC and Lena Gain meets a 2001 High Court case, one of the seminal cases in privacy law here in Australia, gave the classic heads of confidential information, uh, being health information, personal relationship information, financial information. And the concept is that a person who sees medical information should know or ought to know um, the uh, it's either it's either imputed that they'll know or ought to have known that that information was confidential and should be kept confidential, and so the ob obligation of confidence falls on them um, as a primary a primary um, a primary obligation of confidence, even though they they may have come into possession with that information. So that's how we do it. We actually use traditional causes of um, action to to sound in uh, compensation. How we also use the Privacy Act in litigation is the Privacy Act will give, does give the right to seek an injunction to either mandatory or otherwise. And in the Medibank class action, I pleaded a mandatory injunction requiring Medibank to destroy the information of past customers. Medibank involved I think 7.3 million people and they have under 4 million current customers. So a large cohort of people whose information they really didn't need to keep, at least not keep in a live environment and not keep in an identified format. So um, we, we do actually get that and that then allows us to plead all the sexy stuff of, of the breaches of the Australian privacy principles that the corporation has done. We can protect privacy. Um, now without a statutory tort. No question. All that a statutory tort will do, it will focus individuals and practitioners' um, uh, attention on the fact that there is actually a cause of action. So for me to knit together that tapestry, it's involved nearly 20 years of experience in the field. Once we have a privacy tort, there'll be elements. We're, we're very much, as a, as a country, respond to legislation and, and uh, enforcement of legislation. 
So there'll be elements, and of course that will then go be, be before the courts to say what does this actual element mean, what does invasion mean, what's unreasonable invasion, what's a serious breach, et cetera, et cetera, will go before the courts. But we can we can protect and do protect the matters now. But can I just briefly, I know that's been a long explanation, but I just want to briefly talk about where the, the law is developing now in relation to corporations and business, and this is relevant for business practitioners. Um, I'm now arguing cases before the court that are not involving major data breaches, but it's involving the interpretation of commercial contracts between two corporations. If one corporation says, I'll keep this information of our project confidential, what does that mean? So what I now have a case before the courts where what I will be arguing is what that means in 2023 is you have to have a particular standard of security to ensure that hackers don't get into that information. And this is a hacker's case where information relating to a project was compromised. And, and that standard has to be set according to the size of your organisation. What Medibank standards should be would be significantly different than what um, an organisation who has a $3 million turnover should be. But we're moving now privacy into a straight commercial setting. And that's the next forefront for privacy law in this country. Thanks, Michael. Um... Now, I'm going to ask uh, both uh, Olga and Michael, um, for, from a point of view of uh, business lawyers, what, what are the key takeaways at present for privacy? I mean, we've obviously heard a lot uh, so far, but you know, what, are the, what are the key points? Um, are they just to be aware of practical issues about uh, what we and our clients have to comply with, or are there bigger policy debates to have? Perhaps, uh, Olga, if we can ask you first. Yes. I think we do need to treat privacy um, as both a business issue and and the human right, and let me just focus on the business issue because I think we've we've dealt with the the human right context earlier. It's typically businesses that create products, offer services, and you know run infrastructure. And increasingly in the modern age, that infrastructure itself includes information. So no longer do we have a situation where information is simply one of many things the infrastructure needs to consider, information itself is used on an industrial scale. So it is clearly a business issue. And so businesses need to be, and and, and forward-thinking businesses, I think, are proactive. And being proactive means they have to understand the developing landscape and all of the policy discussions that we've just had the benefit of, including the developments in the common law. And to me, that boils down to a really simple focus on the end customer and trust. So you might have a business-to-business relationship where you're contracting, but at the end of the day, there will always be a point of delivery that includes individuals and consumers in some shape or form. And to that end, you really have to understand what is the community expectation of what happens to their information and essentially avoid surprises. And once you absorb that, then you can start thinking about which part of your business needs to be more engaged in which type of matters and really drill down to the skills that you might need in order to respond to them. And obviously lawyers play a very important part in advising what the law is and what the emerging legal issues are. But lawyers also will need to work very closely with technologists, with security experts, because most of the standards, and and again, Michael's alluded to the fact that the Privacy Act creates a whole lot of standards around security, 
and the standards are reiterated in the risk-based language, in a language of reasonableness. And in order to be proactive, you need to be very mindful of the fact that yesterday's standards will not be today's or tomorrow's standards. And reasonableness is a pretty dynamic, not a set and forget environment. That would be my very big call out from a business perspective. The other piece I was just going to mention from a business perspective is um, even smaller businesses will have international footprints because of the nature of how commerce works. And it will be very short-sighted not to look at the high watermark jurisdictions, such as the um, General Data Protection Regulation and the effect that it has. And closer to home, all of the countries that are our nearest neighbours either have or implementing universal economy-wide reforms when it comes to processing information. And those differences and those similarities are business issues as well as legal issues. And so I don't think you could have a sustainable business unless you have sustainable data practices. Thanks, Olga. Um, uh, Michael, what are the key takeaways from your perspective? Look, the key takeaways is that, firstly, um, do not think of privacy law obligations uh, and protections as being uh, embodied within either the Privacy Act or the State Data Privacy Acts. To do so is dangerous. To do so will open up any practitioner to um, great risk. It is imperative that practitioners, business practitioners, understand the other causes of action and are able to advise their clients not uh, on, well, you may not have breached app, app 2, but you've made this representation and that, that brings us into difficulties under uh, Section 18 uh, of, the, uh, of the ACL for example. So you really need to know those other obligations. The second key takeaway is that the legislative regime will change. It'll be slow, but it will change. I have great confidence that the employee uh, records um, recommendation will ultimately be adopted, even though it's going out for further consultation. I am uh, hopeful that the small business exemption will go. I believe it will go once again after consultation. The government said they accept it in principle, but for further consultation. That's really to placate the, placate the business communities, um, that the process has been adopted, but this is what we're doing on balance. So that will come in, which therefore means there's a whole cohort of businesses that will fall, and individuals that will fall under the um, under the Privacy Act, we all basically will, I will as well, in the same way that I become a data controller in the same way as I would if I was in, in practising in, uh, in the UK. So that's the second aspect. It is changing and there's a whole group of people that need to be educated. The third thing is I think that where lawyers can really, uh, there's often been a very much a disconnect between the law, except in big organisations, between the law and the lawyers and the technical side. And there should not be that disconnect um, because the greatest, what, what as a lawyer, what you want me to be in a position if I'm representing your client uh, who is a corporation, you want me to be in a position to stand up and to say, Your Honour, there is nothing more that this company could have done. 
Now, let me make good that proposition and then explain all of the steps that have been taken by that organisation. Now, those steps do involve technical steps of security, critically. But one of the things that we should, as lawyers, be adopting as part of the legal foundation that is going to give that corporation legal protection is just at the outset, even by adopting privacy by design, which is internationally now accepted. Privacy by design just means that when you're developing a new system, make privacy as the foundation. You build it into the platform. You don't add it on later. And that should be the way that we should be, um, we should be moving. And business lawyers, we need to get ourselves out of the act and we need to roll up our sleeves and start to understand and work with the technical sides to ensure that and to give advice in relation to what the law says in relation to security and where it's likely to go and, and what the reforms are and therefore how it's going to impact um, on, on organisations. The reason we have to do that is because, as I said, there's no one clear piece of legislation that covers it. It's a whole range of things that, that cover the legal, the legal frame, framework or tapestry that makes up our, our, privacy, um, our privacy obligations or corporations' privacy obligations. So they would be my uh, key takeouts. Now, on a purely business sense, when you're reviewing a commercial contract between organisations that has a confidentiality clause, for example, which they all do, and particularly in relation to the sharing of data, look at that clause through a privacy prism. What does that mean? What obligations in relation to security of that information will that impose on my client? Now, we don't know. It's, it's being tested, but you really have to know. If you have a client who signs that, you need to ask them, okay, you've signed this. Tell me about your security. Because the Medibank class action, the Medibank breach started by one individual not having two-factor authentication on their email account, which now in 365 is pushing a button and keying in a, a, a mobile phone number. It is unacceptable. So you need to look at commercial contracts, particularly insofar as they relate to confidentiality of information that's exchanged under that contract through a privacy prism, and that's where the law is heading. Thank you, Michael. And indeed, thank you both, Michael and Olga, for what's been a fascinating discussion. This is clearly uh, a critical area, uh, both from a policy perspective, but also from the practical perspective of the, the business lawyer and indeed uh, uh, large and small businesses. Uh, so thank you both, Michael and Olga. You have been listening to the BLS Report, a podcast produced by the Business Law Section of the Law Council of Australia. Our guests were Olga Ganapolsky and Michael Rivette. I'm John Keeves and my co-host is Pamela Hanrahan. Thank you. <laughs>